0: Well, good morning once again, and I'm turning in my Bibles to Daniel chapter 8. We're going to get back in to where we left off in our study of the book of Daniel. So, Daniel chapter 8. As you're turning there, I'd like to pray. Lord, as the message of the song we just sang was that We ask now that our hearts would be humble before You. And that we would be ready to hear what Your Word has to say. And so we first recognize that what we are opening and turning to is none less than Your Word. It's written by man, but it's inspired by Your Holy Spirit. And therefore, it is authoritative over our lives. So Father, we ought to be in reverence of it, quick to hear it, and ready to take up the message that it has for us today, at the start of this new year. So we pray for your blessing as we look at it together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me as we read Daniel chapter 8? beginning with verse 1, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ule Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram, standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and the horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west, across the face of the whole earth, without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. You can be seated. Let's to begin today by just asking that ourselves, what is it that we will go about as Christ followers in 2020? Uh, maybe it would be helpful if I informed that question a little bit, I think you know the general things that you should go about. But what would you set yourself to do in 2020 if you knew something about what was to come in the future? Now, it could be 200 years from now, or it could be two days from now, but if you knew something of what had been determined, what would you set yourself to be about? Well, I'll tell you something. You and I are not so different from Daniel in terms of knowing something about what is to come and therefore having an informed decision about how it is then we should do. We should live and do. In fact, it occurred one day that while John Wesley was riding to his next preaching engagement, a stranger approached him. And the man asked Mr. Wesley, If you knew that Christ was going to return at noon on the next day, what would you do? That's what the man asked him. Now we'll get to Wesley's response to his questioner. But I'm going to let Daniel and this 8th chapter lead the way. Now I'm sure that Daniel 8 really must be one of those beloved passages that you just look too often, right? When you really need a word of encouragement, where do you go? Daniel chapter 8, am I right? Yeah, let's be honest. Probably not, right? But is the reason that we've given it so little thought perhaps because we don't want to bother looking beyond the surface of it? But one of our aims in covering the whole book of Daniel is to debunk the thinking that, you know, some of the parts of the Bible are just, they're out of my league. Do you think that way sometimes? You know, this stuff is it's beyond me. Let's leave that to the scholars. They'll figure it out. But listen, this isn't out of your league. It's just out of your familiarity. Because you can't study Daniel or Zechariah or Ezekiel or Revelation the way that you would study someone like Peter or Paul, those letters, right? This isn't a letter. This isn't an epistle. Okay, so there's not... When you come to letters like that, you've got very clear commands and explanations and right things that are given. But genre of this sort, what we call the apocalyptic, is highly symbolic, right? And it's, and it's not always fully explained. But the challenge then is to reckon with what is known... What is there? And then remember, to keep applying that rule when it comes to interpretation of what? Context, right? Context is key. Now, one thing, okay, that I want to encourage you that would surely be helpful is that as we approach the rest of this book is that you read the chapter before it gets preached on. Now, it shouldn't be hard because we're following it chapter by chapter. You follow me? Okay, because as we move on to the rest of this book, some of these chapters are at such length that we are not going to have time to read them in their entirety, which is our custom when we begin. And do you know why we do that? Do you know why we stand together and we read the Word of God? Because Paul told Timothy to make sure that he devoted himself, listen now, to the public reading of Scripture, and to exhortation, and to teaching. So it's clearly God's will... That you read, we read together from His Word. We at least do that. It's good to know you're in the will of God, isn't it? Okay. And the reason that we stand, you say, well, why do we do that? Well, it's not commanded. But it's to remind ourselves that what we are reading is God's Word. It's His Word. So it's not like any other word that's out there. So therefore, it summons a special reverence, right? And appreciation. God's given us His Word. And also reminds me that Scripture tells me to stand. You know that? After having done all, stand firm. Right? So symbolically, when you stand up to read, you should be telling yourself, I need to stand firm on what He has written. So don't just, just stand, but take your stand when we stand to read. So this reading, what we did just together here, it's a vital part of assembled worship. It's so not just... Something we're forcing ourselves to do. But what I'm encouraging you to do is to not let this reading, like what I just did, be your first exposure to the text. Okay? I want you to be like a bread maker. Okay? So this hour together that we have is when you come and we we put the dough in the oven and the smell is going to begin to fill the air, right? And then when it comes time to leave, you're going to have something to take home and enjoy. That nice Baked bread, right? But that means you've got to come here with the dough already ready. Right? Do you follow? It's been mixed. It's been worked. It's been sitting a while in your mind. So the dough's ready. But you come here without dough, the whole time you're going to be scrambling to get caught up, right? You're going to be so distracted by the ingredients that you're going to miss the baking instructions. Don't leave here with half-baked bread, right? Or bread that's inedible. Because in all seriousness, not only will you not feed yourself, you won't feed anyone else at your table either. Because you're meant to take this home with you. Okay. So what does Daniel 8 have for me, standing here on the brink of 2020? <laughs> right. Well, first you have to see what it meant for Daniel, right? Right. What did it mean for him? Let's look at it together. The first two verses give us the setting and the backdrop of the vision, right? Chapter 8, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. Whenever Daniel begins a new segment, okay, and there are 10 in this book, they pretty much follow chapter to chapter, so this is the eighth. Segment. there's always a reference to time and a king. You'll see that. That's how Daniel marks off a new section. So we're now in what? The third year of King Belshazzar, right? Here it is. Who we know about from where? From chapter 5. So, historically speaking... Babylon is still the dominating world power at the time, right? And the mention of Belshazzar from Daniel chapter 5 reminds us that it's not going to be this way for long, though, right? Belshazzar is the last king of Babylon. But has Daniel 5 happened yet at this point? No, right? Because this vision comes only in the third year of this king's reign. But note also that Daniel says it comes after that which happened to me at the first. So he's referring to the vision of chapter 7. right? That was the first time that Daniel received a vision from God. And now, two years later, a second vision appears. Okay. Verse 2, And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ule Canal. Now, what I want you to see here is that already there's an obvious contrast with the first vision, okay, with what Daniel was given in chapter 7. Because back in chapter 7, Daniel saw, remember this, four great beasts which came up from the great sea, as he called it. So the location is very generalized, very symbolic. The beasts are never specifically identified and there's no specific location of this great sea. It's just a general idea. You could say this, that chapter 7 was about universal and ultimate realities. But already here in this vision, there are three particulars, aren't there, right? We have a particular city, a particular province, even a particular river, right? So we have... Whereas chapter 7 dealt with the universal, chapter 8 deals with the specific, identifiable, and more immediate fulfillments. Okay? So here it is, by the way. See that? There's Susa, because it remains inhabited today. People still live there today. And there's the Ule Canal. Here's another picture. See that structure that's jutting into the sky There. That is called the tomb of Daniel. Tradition has it that Daniel was buried here and the tomb still stands there. And you're saying, well, it looks kind of Muslim. Well, that's because it is. Both Jews and Muslims revere Daniel the prophet. Now, there is no hard evidence that he was actually ever there. He certainly is not now. It's just a shrine. And if Daniel knew about it, he would detest it. But it stands there today. Isn't that interesting? Tradition has it that he was buried there. The significance of this place is that within just a few decades, Susa, this citadel, would be the center of political power in the Persian Empire. Okay, it was one of four capitals, but politically very important. And as evidence to that, you have both people like Nehemiah, remember the king's cupbearer, and Esther, the queen, would later be living here. You understand? It's a pretty significant city. But what Daniel sees, he sees what takes place even beyond those guys' days, even beyond Nehemiah and Esther. And from here, the drama begins to unfold, right? And first on the scene is what? This powerful ram, right? Verse 3. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other and the higher one came up last. He goes on to say, I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward and no beast could stand before him. There was no one who could rescue from his power. What's the most noticeable feature of the ram? What's given most attention here? Well, it's horns, right? Two horns. One is higher than the other. You know, the horn in the Bible is a picture of strength or power. David, for example, called God the horn of my salvation. Right? But very curiously, here, Daniel sees that one is raised up and comes up last, but surpasses the other. Now, according to verse 20, okay because we're going to look at this whole chapter today, but just flip over to verse 20 for a, a second. This is the angelic interpretation. Okay. Now notice how plain and specific it is, right? Verse 20, As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. There it is. Okay. The kingdom was made up of two peoples, hence the two horns, and the dominant of the two, the one that was higher that came up last, we know it was the Persian side. Persians were stronger than the Medes. This probably explains why the bear in chapter seven was lopsided. You remember that? One side was raised higher than the other. So the two horned ram charges and he charges westward and charges north and south and he was unrivaled, right? No one could stand before this beast. He became great. And this, by the way, is very much historically attested. The Medo-Persians went west to Babylon, right? Past Babylon into Asia Minor and then into Syria. In the north they took Armenia and around the Caspian Sea, and then south they finally broke into Africa. Now while Daniel is watching and he's thinking about this ram, suddenly a second figure emerges. Verse 5, As I was considering, behold... A male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Now we have a male goat, okay, and he's charging in from the west, and he's got one noticeable feature, right? A single horn between his eyes. So get this, right? A western power is attacking Iranian forces. You know, Susa is in modern-day Iran, right? Now, considering the news this week, I find that a bit ironic. You've been watching the news, haven't you? Okay. But, of course, I would venture to say nothing beyond that, the fact that it is ironic. Because remember, folks, context, right? Don't get carried away when you read symbolic literature. The interpretation is very clear, again, according to verse 21. Here you have it again. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. So, unlike the generalities of chapter 7, chapter 8 is very specific, isn't it? In fact, this chapter is so specific that secular research flat out rejects Daniel's authorship. They say, no, no way. This had to be written after all of this was said and done, right? In the first century B.C., Well, yeah, unless God is God, right? And there's no evidence that anyone other than Daniel himself wrote this. But why? What is so hard for people to accept that that is so incredibly accurate? Because Greece, under Alexander the Great, swept over the known world in six to ten years. And that, in fact, That fact accords with the speed of the goat, right, that traversed the earth so fast his feet didn't even touch the ground. That's the idea. He came with speed. Daniel goes on to see that the goat charges the ram with such fury that he breaks the horns of the ram and he tramples him down. So just like that, right, the ram is out of the picture. And I'll tell you a little history here, right? Alexander the Great met with the Persian army in 334 BC at the Granicus River. The Greeks were 35,000 in number. The Persians were 100,000 in number with 10,000 horsemen. The Greeks plunged through the riverbed with such force that they defeated them. It was said that the Greeks lost a hundred men, but killed 20,000. Three years later, the Persians were completely conquered. Now, you would think, right, just knowing that and reading what you just read here, that this must be, right, the climactic moment of the vision, right? Right? I mean, it's certainly a dramatic moment. I mean, look at it here, folks. Look at this, right? Daniel took a picture of it while it was happening, and he uploaded it to Instagram so we can see it here today. I'm so glad he did that. But, I mean, look at this, right? I mean, this goat is coming into the ram. This must be it. But look at this. It isn't. Because in a quick turn of events, just look at verse 8 for a minute. Because then it says, Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. So neither the goat, nor its first king, that conspicuous horn there, are the climax of this vision. Now this is surprising, right? Because... Even historically speaking, the Greeks were never as strong as they were after Alexander the Great. And even the interpretation at the end of verse 22 affirms that. Because it says there, As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. So it seems to be on the decline after this, this empire. But... So you're saying, well, why isn't this the climactic part of the vision? Well, remember, this isn't man's estimation of what is ultimately noteworthy and significant in history. This is how God views things. Okay, And so the vision turns its attention towards something that the rest of the world might have glanced over, a little horn, right? And the question is, well, why? Why does God focus here? The rest of the world would be, wow, Alexander the Great can't get any better than that. But God moves it past him, and here into verse 9. Out of one of them, because the kingdom splits into four, right? So you have four more kingdoms. And out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Now, who has their theological antenna up? What stands out there? Okay. The little horn out of the Grecian Empire sets his aim on what? The glorious land. Hey, that's God's land. Are you beginning to understand why God is directing the vision here? Listen, in the words of one scholar, because he put it quite well, this understanding of history focuses the judgment of God on one issue, How did that nation respond to my chosen people? And by the way, the final judgment of the nations, when all this is said and done, future to now, when Jesus separates the sheep from the goats, it will be on this same basis. How did they respond to my people? Because whatever they did to them, Jesus says, they did to me. You remember this? Alexander the Great was no saint. But neither did he rise to the rebellion that's spoken of here, beginning with verse 10, right? Follow with me. It grew great, even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. Talk about God. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it, to the little horn, together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. So who was this little horn? Well, out of the Seleucid dynasty, okay, one of those four kingdoms, we're not going to talk about all of them, but one of them called the Seleucid dynasty, came a ruler who sought to control Palestine. He was power hungry and he wanted it. It belonged to another dynasty and they fought over it. There was conflict, but he took over. And when he did, he began to enforce Greek culture over the Jewish people. He even replaced their high priest with his own Greek man. Now, that ruler's name was Antiochus. Have you heard of him? but the title he later appropriated for himself was Theos Antiochus Epiphanes, which means the illustrious God. His title. Others preferred to call him Epimanes, which is a little play on words, but it meant the madman. At one point, The Jews heard that he had been killed when he was in Egypt. And joyously, they put their own high priest back into place. Well, it was just a rumor, and it turns out that he wasn't dead. And when he found out what they did, he interpreted their actions as open rebellion. And in the span of three days, he killed 40,000 Jews. He sacrificed a pig on the altar of burnt offering. He defiled the temple precincts and instead appointed a traitor as the high priest. In fact, whenever he was foiled, whenever things didn't go his way, you know what he did? He took revenge on the Jews. In 168 BC, he massacred Jews on the Sabbath day as they worshipped. And from there, he put an end to the temple sacrifices. Listen, there's no debate that the immediate fulfillment of the little horn who came out of the Grecian Empire is Antiochus, Epiphanies, okay. The one who made himself appear as great as God, right? The prince of the host. It is, however, no coincidence that a little horn, remember this, also appeared in chapter 7. Remember that? But where did it come out of there? It rose from the fourth beast, right? Not the third. So what do you say about this then? Well, Antiochus is a type of the Antichrist to come. He is one of many examples of what's coming. He's the embryo of an evil that has yet to be born here on earth. Now, is this simply Satan's demonic activity that God is drawing our attention to in this vision? Is this what he wants us to see mainly? Well, did you notice this in verse 12? In verse 12 it says this, And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering, because... Of transgression. Because of transgression. Now, the question is whose transgression? Now, it could be the little horn, but more than likely, it's not referring to him, but the sins of the people that have incurred and brought this judgment on themselves. Which means this, that the fall of Jerusalem and the exile into Babylon would not be the end to the cycle of sin and judgment for Israel. And yeah, even this horrific ruler acted only by the allowance of God. Did you note verse 24? Verse 24. Speaking of him, it said, His power shall be great, but not by his own power, meaning. God allowed it, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind, isn't that interesting, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. God allowed him to do what he did. But notice that he also took him out, just as it says here, by no human hand. Antiochus died of an exceedingly painful disease on a return trip from Persia. And just as God took him out, God will also one day take out the final Antichrist. And even though it was, but think about this, even though it was sin that brought on this Horrific persecution. God was not aloof, and He wasn't removed. In fact, deliverance did come at one point, and Jews still commemorate that deliverance on Hanukkah every year. Have you heard of Judas Maccabees? Led a revolt, and won freedom, finally, for the Jewish state. But you know what? That's not the deliverer that God's history focuses on either. Because of the Maccabean revolt did not solve the ultimate problem. The people still sinned. And it worsened. Because guess what? When the mighty deliverer finally did come for his own people, because they loved their sin, they wanted nothing to do with him. God was like the master who said, I've been sending you my servants. Well, you know what? I'm going to send you my son. They'll listen to him. But guess what? Instead, they beat him and they killed him. They joined forces with the kingdoms of this world and they crucified the Lord of glory. Because you heard about the ram, right? And you've heard about the goat. But I hope you don't leave here today without hearing about the lamb. Isn't this interesting? That over against these charging beasts, that characterized people. When God stepped into the world as a man, the picture that God gave us was that of a lamb. Because the lamb was for sacrifice. The lamb of God was how God finally and definitively dealt with the transgression of His people. And if you hear that today, and you still choose to trample underfoot the Son of God by loving your sin, listen, There's nowhere else. That's God's only means of salvation. Because no one else can ever pay that price. And still, He invites everyone to receive that forgiveness for your sins. He came as a lamb. The price is paid. But He'll be back as a lion. So you know something of what is to come, don't you? You know that suffering, you know that persecution is not abnormal for you and I. But it's expected from this preaching of the gospel, defense. You know it because the pattern in Daniel's vision continues into this age until Jesus does return. So, what then should you do? Well, did you notice this in verse 27? And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. You know, that's not the way that, I don't know if you remember this, but remember King Hezekiah? That's not the way that Hezekiah responded when God spoke his word to him. You remember when Isaiah told him, you know, all these things that you proudly displayed to the Babylonians, they're going to be carried off one day. And your people too. And you know his response of, Well, that's good. You know why? Because it's not in my day. In other words, I don't care. But instead, what I see here is the suffering that awaited God's people, even though it was generations off from Daniel's own time, was felt in his own body. That's the extent to which he was devastated by the lostness of the world, the transgression of his own people, and the judgment that was going to come on them. It wasn't because he caught a cold. It's because he cared. He identified with them. Has that lostness and suffering of others has that grown distant from your own heart? You know it happens. You need to ask yourself: You know how would Jesus look upon my behavior as I have been treating other people? And you need to ask yourself: Would He see compassion? Would He see compassion? We ought to be personally involved in the message you preach, as Daniel himself was. But that's not all, right? Because then it says, Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So Daniel knows something of what's to come, and it appalled him. And he didn't even get all of it, right? Even with the interpretation, he didn't understand all of it. And yet, even knowing that such terrible things were still to come, what did he do? He went about the king's business. He didn't isolate himself. He didn't hide out in a corner. He got back to the place where God called him, which at that time was as a servant to a wicked king named Belshazzar, who, by the way, didn't even notice him. So when John Wesley was asked, Hey, what would you do if you knew Christ would return tomorrow at noon? He reached into his bag, he took out his diary, and he read out his engagements, right? Of what he had to do that evening and the next morning. And then he said, That, dear sir, is what I would do. Because he was already living as a servant of the kingdom. He was doing the king's business. Hey, What's the business of your king? Well, why don't you read the Gospels and find out what your king was up to? There's an idea. It may surprise you. But one thing you'll notice about your king is that he prayed. Actually, our Lord's prayer life was the power of his ministry. I want you to think about that for a minute. I mean, as a church. Because I don't know if you've noticed this, but I have in being here. That somewhere down the line, and this is not to place blame on someone, to say, what happened? What did you do? But somewhere along the line, prayer as a church got pushed out. and Instead, we have programs. Did you notice that? You are a program-oriented church. You're not a prayer-oriented church. It happened. So what you're saying is, I want to be about the king's business, but I'm not asking the king to help. Which means, you know, I'm excited to go into Wednesday night and teach kids, but I don't want to do it without power. I don't want to preach without power. And so I'm calling you as a church, if this is a vision for the year, to get back to prayer. And so I'm asking you to be expectant that at some time, even this month, we will call together a first prayer service. Do you remember prayer meeting, we used to call it? But a prayer service. It'll be on Sunday evening. And I'm going to ask you to take it seriously, as seriously as you take what you're doing here this morning. And along those lines, if you have not been involved in Sunday school, now would be a good time to say, well, maybe I'll do that. Because what we're going to do then in the next eight weeks or so is look at a little study called Praying with Paul. going to teach us a little bit about how we can go about and creatively come to God the Father and pray. So I'm really looking forward to it, a great way to supplement what we're trying to do together. But we need to pray about these things. Before we do, agree? That's what I see as the business of our King. I'll well, pray with me. Lord, I can only speak for myself. And coming to you and saying, Lord, I have neglected myself to turn to you first before engaging in the many ministries and opportunities that there are to serve. And we want to serve. We want to be busy for the right things, for kingdom purposes. But God, I don't want to do it without you. I don't want to do it without first turning to you and see how you would have us to do it. Or what you'd want us to focus our attention on. And so I'm praying that you would first lead us in a way that we draw our strength from you. That we learn to commune with you and be near to your heart and therefore your passions and your desires. And then we can see what you will do in and through this church in the days, months, and years to come but we need your help. So I'm asking this in the, by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Amen.